This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to the Female Red Zone. This is Mary Beth Kuzmaski. Today, I'm interviewing Deborah Hicks Medanik. She is a seasoned corporate director and an executive with a long record of successful leadership in challenging situations. She's known for her corporate turnaround achievements. She's diagnosed all sorts of difficult situations, crafted solutions for over 60 companies in a variety of industries. She sits on multiple boards. She is uh, very successful, and I'm really excited to talk with Deborah today. So thank you, Deborah, for being part of the Female Red Zone. Oh, thank you so much, Mary Beth. It's a privilege to be here. So one of the things that uh, I I hear from people that have you know reached a certain level of success is that they've had to overcome some things in order to get there. I mean, you, you talk about anybody who's reached success, they've had to overcome some obstacles, some odds, some of their own thinking, you know, whatever that might be. But if you have to think about your own career, and then we'll talk a little bit about where you're working now and some of the work that you're doing, but what what would be some of, or one of the sort of significant obstacles that you had to get over to to get and sort of to climb up the corporate ladder? What a fascinating question. And of course, one's own view evolved about that. To me, I think I went to 13 elementary schools. I was the only child of an only mother. And uh, I, you know, basically have the adult child of the alcoholic syndrome, right? Always wanted to be perfect. Always wanted to look behind the curtain and find out what's really going on. Um, But having zero self-confidence. I have been terrified for much of my life, and that has been the primary fuel that has forced me forward. I always thought that I was trying to catch up with everybody else, and it turns out repeatedly I haven't just been catching up. I've been way out in front, but who knew? (laughs) (laughs) So what about this confidence? Why do you think that you have had or have had in the past some maybe a crisis of confidence, it sounds like? Oh, sure. A constant crisis of confidence. Uh, And, uh, you know, I've learned to my toes that there's no such thing as failure. Every single thing that happens in one's life is a blessing. And the question is finding the gift in each individual event. Uh, And the very first thing I had to learn was to sort of get unfrozen and stop being terrified I mean, I literally used to have to go in the bathroom at various places I worked and hyperventilate until I calmed down about the fact that I was wearing the wrong clothes. I had said the wrong thing. I had answered the phone improperly. Um, I had done everything wrong. Um, So I had to spend an awful lot of time talking to myself and talking myself into thinking, okay, just try it one more time. Just go out there one more time and give it one more try. And uh, once you've sort of had to battle with yourself to even step out of the bathroom, 
um, you're kind of used to fighting with yourself and fighting yourself forward and jumping obstacles. And the only thing that happens is the obstacles get bigger. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Well, so, I mean, this is very interesting because I think that a lot of women and myself included, you know, that there, there are some confidence issues that come up sometimes over and over again, sometimes always in the same situation, uh, sometimes periodically popping into our heads. And so how did you get out of the bathroom? I know you said just one more time. Was there anything else that you sort of said or to yourself to, to get you to take that step forward and, and, and release yourself? Well, I am mentioning it because I know that this is sort of a universal problem, uh, particularly amongst women. So, you know, w- what I have done, and uh, it's now so much second nature to me that I don't remember that I do it, but I pretty much break every project that I'm doing down into little tiny pieces because I can be overwhelmed by a huge project. But if I simply say, okay, the first step is to turn on the computer. And then the next step is to figure out what the first sentence is. And then once you've done the first sentence, then maybe you try for the first sentence of the next paragraph. You know, if you break it down into little tiny pieces, you're not scaring yourself to death. So the energy that goes into stopping yourself from doing something um, translates and becomes energy that is propelling you forward. But, you know, I do, I'm sorry if I'm getting too abstract here, but I do hugely value the energy that's associated with that fear because it is a really important propellant, right? If I hadn't been really frightened um, of many of the things that I've done, I would certainly never have done them. Well, and you know, so Does that for, sound just too crazy. <laughs> no, but but for the audience, I mean, I'd like you to know that um, that Deborah has been a CEO of not one, not two, but three companies. She's been uh, chief restructuring officer of of three companies. She's been president and chief chief operating officer of other companies. She's been principals in companies. So this isn't like you know you're in some. Uh, middle position. I mean, you've been at the very highest level of some very large companies. So uh, I guess that leads me to talk a little bit about your career and knowing that we've now have this background, this picture of this of confidence that I think most of us have, you've reached the highest levels. Talk about some of the the path that you took to get to where you're going or, or why you think you were able to do some of those things. Well, there is a certain um, characteristic, and I do think that it is very frequently found amongst females, is that uh, called resilience, right? You can get knocked down a million times, and you're still going to keep getting up. And it just goes with perhaps having a physiology that produces babies or something like that. You know, my sort of so-called career has largely been accidental. And I think that a lot of people that are uh, considered to be hugely successful would probably say that in that I just sort of stepped in various things and followed them where they were going to take me. And, um, you know, I've constantly had the sort of, who, me? Oh, well, I guess somebody has to do it. May as well be me. Okay, well, I'll give it a try. And um, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> uh, so there we go. 
Well, I, I like that. What's the worst that can happen? Because when you step into a big position, there's a lot of big risk. Um, but what were some of the positions that you felt were critical into stepping into some of the bigger positions? Where did you feel you got a lot of your education and, um, and, and I mean, on the job education that, that has led you to even be up for some of these, um, these positions? You know, what, what was some of that background that, that helped get you to those places? Well, I would say that um, I had a very interesting career on Wall Street in the 1980s where I was involved in the very early days of the interest rate and currency swap market, which later became called the world of derivatives. Um, I was an early member of the structured finance world. Uh, I left um, Drexel Burnham as the head of um, structured finance in the mortgage arena. And um, so, but those are everyday humdrum sorts of challenges. The interesting turning point, I would say, in my so-called career was the bankruptcy of Drexel Burnham, my employer, in 1990. Uh, it was not well understood that this company that had been vilified far and wide because of its association with the junk bond king, quote-unquote, Michael Milken, and its... Um, his ability to raise financing for um, small people to take over big companies at the drop of a hat, which terrified people. I organized the shareholders of that company to get representation from the bankruptcy court, and the shareholders were the employees. That was not publicly recognized, and the 50th largest shareholder of that company was the head of the mailroom. So it wasn't someone who had historically been associated with making a lot of money. These were the loyal rank-and-file employees who had um, come in and showed up for work every day, no matter what the press was saying about insider trading and RICO violations and so on and so forth. So that was a huge turning point for me to organize the shareholders, get represented, recognized by the court to represent them. And then I chaired that committee from that position as chairman, uh, I negotiated a restructured board of the bankrupt company and became the consensus director myself. Um, and that was the biggest, most notorious bankruptcy of the time. And uh, I was serving on the board of directors as the de facto lead director, never having spelled the word board before. Interesting. Well, what what you talk about an education that was a quick education on all sorts of things that you had to figure out pretty quickly. Yeah, pretty amazing. Um, it was indeed. It was fascinating. Well, you know, the other thing that that's fascinating to me is that you know you you're working in financial services uh, in a leadership role uh, when there are you know there, there are very few women around when you were doing this. How did you deal with that? Did you did it did it affect you? Did you find that there were things that were happening to you because you were a woman, or did you move through it? Or kind of t talk about that a little bit. Well, as those of us of a certain age who are female know, these are many, many faceted questions. You know, it's never all bad or all good. That's right. Uh, so um, I think that the reason that I could do that. At a young age, I was 35 at that time, was in part because, you know, I was basically a bumblebee, right? I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be able to fly. 
So I had no idea what a big undertaking it would be to organize the shareholders and then petition the court and then from that position restructure the board and then sit on the board and then work out the uh, extremely complex bankruptcy issues that needed to be dealt with. So that was very valuable. I did not know that I wasn't supposed to be able to do it. (laughs) Uh, Two, and I think this is frequently a female position, I was seriously underestimated. And that, so that I looked like I was kind of from central casting. I was a pleasant, nice um, 35-year-old mother who um, wasn't, you know, conspicuously angry at anybody. I wasn't throwing bricks. I was just trying to work on an outcome. And I think the people around me who were in positions of power thought that if they were going to have to have someone from the shareholders involved in this, I was a really good candidate. But um, again, because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be able to do things, um, I just kept doing them. And they weren't expecting that. Um, My technique became one of constantly asking questions. Uh, from uh, seeking wisdom from the men in their 70s that were surrounding me on this board. Um, I asked them in the hallway, have you thought about this? Why isn't that? What do you think about this idea? Why am I not understanding this? And so on. Using that technique, I built coalition of people who did not realize at the time that I was moving them in a particular direction. And so instead of asserting myself and getting into a fight over do it this way and go there, um, I was leading from behind, essentially, by managing upward. And I think that that's a very common female position that we get into. And it, um, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful tool. It takes a lot of time and patience. It's a lot easier just to say, go do that and go do that. But of course, I didn't have the authority to do that. You know, I, nobody would have believed me or listened to me because who was I? I was a Johnny come lately who had no uh, credentials to be in the boardroom. Very interesting. I mean, it, did you think about building a coalition that, you know, did you do it very specifically or was it something that just based on where you were? position that you just felt you had to do and it turned out to be that while doing that you built a coalition of of people that were sort of on your side? Uh, Both actually. I mean I recruited the independent directors and I had one eye on the fact that since I was the person calling them that you know there's always that implicit thing about sponsorship like who brought you to the party. Well if I was the person who placed the call they had some degree of allegiance to me because I had brought them in. Um, then the second was I had to have a coalition because I had, and this is true in any board setting for anybody, you know, no individual director can make a huge impact. The individual director has to learn to bring the rest of the board along to get to a particular position. Uh, and I don't think people who are not on boards understand that when they want to get so-and-so onto a board well, so-and-so can only go so far unless so-and-so brings all the other so-and-sos along. There was another thing I learned that was important, and I'm not sure that I've been particularly good at following up on it, but I realized when I was sitting there uh, in the boardroom that uh, and dealing with very complex and difficult subject matter 
that it was difficult for the people around the table to hear me. And it wasn't that, it, it may have been in part that they didn't think I had anything useful to say. Um, but I don't think it was that. Uh, I think it was largely that it's hard for men to hear some of the registers in a female voice. And so I learned to do what I called throw my voice at the ceiling and simply project my voice forward by going, gentlemen, I have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really did learn. I needed to put my voice in a different register. I needed to go deeper in terms of the, the, the tone of voice that I use. Very interesting because there's a couple of things. Well, there's a lot of things that you just mentioned that I want to ask about, but um, let me go back a couple, a couple steps. The being seriously underestimated. So in that one position, you felt you were seriously underestimated, but as you've moved forward, has that gone away? I mean, now I would hope it would be, it would be gone, but did you see that happen again and again where you were underestimated maybe because you were a woman or just because of your position or because of what they thought that you probably were? Well, both. Um, you know, I, I, females and particularly my style of female where I'm not particularly, you know, I don't stand on authority. I try very hard to win uh, agreement rather than insist that my position is the correct one. So I'm not putting myself up on a pedestal. Uh, so that means that you're always trying to um, uh, project to other people that your comments are worth listening to. So you're always starting from zero. So you probably, to some extent, always start from being underestimated. Um, but you're right. You know, as I did this repeatedly and worked in really difficult situations, uh, I realized that the benefit of being seriously underestimated was going away because I started to have a reputation. And um, I had to have something else. So uh, my next technique became what I call the madman's advantage. Um, that if people never totally knew what I was going to do, they had to pay attention to me. <laughs> <laughs> right? If I was unpredictable. Um, you know, so that was a, a, whole different, uh, a whole different gestalt, if you will. Well, I like that. You know, she, I don't know what she's going to do, so we better pay attention. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. So it's, it's a different form of power. You know, the value of being underestimated is a hugely powerful proposition, right? Because nobody's protecting themselves against you. Uh, but once you're not underestimated anymore, you go to the other end of the power spectrum, and, you know, your power is sort of implicit over, oh, Lord, you know, she's got the power. What's she going to do with it? Hmm. What is she going to do? And, um, you know, so that it, it, it has the effect in it more or less of keeping people a little bit off base so that they're not stuck in their positions. They're watching you to see what the hell is going to happen next. Mm. I think that's genius. <laughs> that's great. Now, back to something else you said before about difficulty hearing you. Um, I think that there's... I mean, it might be hearing like just physically they cannot hear a certain register. Um, they also may not be used to hearing from a woman in that position. And I know sometimes, and I've heard this before, like if I'm sitting at a 
in a conference and there is somebody that is speaking very technically, you know, I just, I kind of feel like I, I'm not listening or they're, you know, they're, they're talking in a very technical way. I just feel like I can zone out and not, cause it's not the kind of thing that I'm used to listening to. I'm not used to listening to somebody talk so technical about certain things. And so it's good, valuable information. There's no reason I shouldn't listen to it, but I find myself doing that. And I wonder if that's some of the same thing. It's not just the, the audible, I can't hear what she's saying, but I'm, maybe I'm just not, it's not the way I'm used to hearing things or I'm not connecting well, or I've never done this before. Listen to a woman who's in a leadership position like you were, and this is many years ago, but I mean, do you think some of those other things are at play or do you think it was really just an audible thing? I have always been fascinated by what makes it possible for people to be heard. And um, because I um, go back to that fear thing and I'm always nervous about whether I'm going to be heard, you know, I get very self-conscious about the whole thing. Uh, and, or at least I used to. I don't think I do anymore. But uh, so I've studied it. And I do think that... Uh, there is a tension in trying to be a female communicator in a boardroom or in any other leadership position in that um, when you are struggling to find your space to be heard in the dominant conversation going on around you, um, you tend to want to sort of grab whatever space is available and squeeze your comments into it quickly so that you, you, know, you found your opening. And I think um, in that circumstance, it's particularly difficult to be heard because all that sort of insecurity and all the speed and all the sort of, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, is coming across. And that gets dismissed. What gets um, heard more easily, and not necessarily all the time, but is when you slow down and don't so much try for that opening and uh, play on their terms. Simply play on your own terms and say, um, I'm sorry, I, I missed the uh, opportunity to speak about this a moment ago, but here is what I would like to contribute. And just do it in a much more relaxed form. I think that the um, often when people are speaking in those technical terms that you were talking about, um, they're playing defense as well because they are covering up their insecurity about speaking by uh, demonstrating expertise through talking technicals, um, which isn't at all about what they're trying to get done, right? They're trying to convey information and they're not getting the information across because they're retreating into technicals to cover their own insecurity. So um, bottom line comment here is you need to think about what you're trying to do and generally slow down the cadence of delivery. It makes a lot of sense, especially when you slow down the delivery. People sort of pay attention, like, uh-oh, wait, wh what's going on? Because it's different than maybe what a lot of the, the cadence that a lot of other people are talking at. And I do get that if you try to pop into a little opening in the conversation and then you talk really fast and you say all these things that it has a perception that they're left with that may not be the perception that you want them to have about you. Exactly. And about what you're you're coming across like a little mosquito. 
Yeah, that's right. Oh, I wonder how many times I've done that. Oh my gosh. Well, oh, I'm, taking, I'm taking some notes here today, learning a lot of things, but this is, it, it makes just so much sense. And, and I think in, in order for women to, you know, have the success that you have had, lots of CEO positions, sitting on lots of boards, directorships, all sorts of things like that, you have to you have to know how to operate in these particular situations because I think one of those one of the failures, if it would be of 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 women, is that we haven't acclimated to the situation. Now there's other failures too. Like you say, there's never just one side of the story. There's not enough women being asked to be on board. But once you're there, are you very effective? Are you and and what actually gets you to that position? And so that leads me to the next question, which is you know, I know that you you sit on a lot of boards. You're probably asked to be on more than you're than you're even sitting on now. But for women that are not on on boards, but maybe have you know a nice corporate position right now and would like to sit on um, a board, how do you sort of start that process? You know, it's difficult, and there's not any one roadmap. Um, in fact, you know, having started in 1990 and now serving on how many over the last 26 years, um, probably 25 different boards of directors, I did have the benefit at that time of not being the woman, right? I happened to be in the position of being the chairman of the court-appointed equity committee, and then in that role, I negotiated the new board, and because there was fear about the um, dynamics of what would happen if there was a majority of people involved who had never seen Drexel before, didn't know anything about the place, I became the consensus candidate who was the balancing factor to make sure that even though we had a preponderance of independent directors, there was continuity um, with what had come before at Drexel. So none of that had anything to do with being female other than, of course, taking up the uh, crusade to get the shareholder committee appointed in the first place. <laughs> and none of the, actually only one board have I been on because they wanted to add another woman. Every other board has been because I have been standing there with the appropriate expertise when there was a need. And um, in that circumstance, it's a very quick decision-making process. Uh, it's not sort of going through a funnel of a great many candidates and coming out the end having been selected. So I, I haven't done very much of that, so I'm not sure how good my, my advice is on that. But I will say a couple of things about this process. There's a lot of clamor right now about getting more women on boards. And I think that that's generally a very good thing when you realize that so much of the consumer uh, buying behavior is controlled by women. So much of financial and investing decision-making is done by women. Uh, so many employees in America's corporations are women. The fact that the boards are not representative of the populations mm -hmm. of their customers, their investors, and their employees seems a little bit silly. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, I can also understand that for the people who are sitting there, who still happen to be predominantly men, um, it's a very human instinct, which is when the stakes are high and you don't want to be uh, destabilizing the company, you want 
to be looking at people who are candidates that you can understand, that you can evaluate. And the human process for doing that, and I'm sure chimpanzees do this too, is you look at someone that you recognize, right? You want to bring in people like us because people like us will be predictable and make decisions that are predictable and that will keep the corporate um, waters calm. So <clears throat> I do have sympathy for the sitting boards of directors trying to grapple with this issue and further sympathy for the fact that, okay, then they decide they're going to have to have a woman. Then they go check the box and have the woman, but try very hard to make her be the least powerful woman she can possibly be. <laughs> because they're trying not to rock the boat. It's not that there's some conspiracy against mm -hmm. women. And it's not that there's some desire to have, you know, only pretty women in the boardroom or something like that. No, no, no. This is about making sure that the corporate uh, health is not disturbed by unpredictable people. And I, I really do understand that. Um, and but so you, you did ask me another question about career success, though, and I'm afraid I'm doing a run on answer. But a great many of the circumstances in which I've been successful um, do go back to that issue of being underestimated in the first place uh, in that um, I have found generally that the people who have hired me to do things um, never evaluated me properly. Right? If they're looking to bring in a woman to do something, um, they're not looking too hard at who that woman is. <laughs> they don't look at expertise, right? Um, they're looking at, can we check the woman box without, without hurting ourselves? Um, so there's a big advantage that women have um, in that they can position themselves in a number of different ways to um, get accepted in the boardroom. But uh, coming back to the, the, the nut of your question, the real basis on which um, people are put on boards is um, the trust connection. If you are either a trusted person known by someone who's sitting on that board, or if you are brought into the mix by a trusted search firm or there is some kind of imprimatur that is over your head that says this is a trusted resource, you can be selected. If you haven't found a way to establish that kind of trust, no matter what, you're not likely to be successful. Well, that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's one of the things that I know myself that I'm concerned about when we, when, you know, we talk about checking off boxes there has to be the incredible qualifications that are there just the same the way that they would hire a man in that position. And, you know, then they can check off the box, but it's got to be the qualification. So it's, it's getting ready to be there. And I think that that's, that's an important thing that you, that you just mentioned. So, well, this has been wonderful. I, I have learned so much. I've taken a bunch of notes. Um, I'm thinking that there's some things I need to change about my own uh, behavior and communication style in, in certain situations. And I think it's just recognizing it. You know, am I trying to pop in and just say something inside of a conversation? Or am I very thoughtful? Am I slow? Am I methodical about how I'm thinking through this and bringing people with me as opposed to being directive? So I've learned a ton. Now, how can people 
get a hold of you, Deborah? I just wanted to add one more one-liner, in a sense, listening to you summarize, Mary Beth, that the difference between being an executive, where you're looking to be effective in what you do, is on a board, you're looking to be perceived as wise. You don't have to be, you know, it's not whether you can get the job done. It's about whether your wisdom can be useful to other people, which is a very different filtering process. Anyway, how can people get a hold of me? Well, um, I am uh, visible at solongroup.com, S-O-L-O-N-G-R-O-U-P.com. And uh, my email address is D-H-M-I-D-A-N-E-K at solongroup.com. And uh, if anybody Googles me, they'll find I'm associated with a zillion different enterprises. But that has been my email address since 1994. So it's not going anywhere. That'll work. Perfect. I know you're on LinkedIn and other places. So um, that's wonderful. I, I This has been a great interview. Thank you so much for participating um, and being a part of the Female Red Zone today. Well, thank you. And I can't wait to hear other podcasts that you're doing. This is a really good program that you're running, Mary Beth. So thank you for including me. Oh, well, you're welcome. And from the Female Red Zone, this is Mary Beth Kuzmeski. Thanks for listening to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.